Welcome to the RSA Events Podcast, the home of world-changing ideas and debate. Good afternoon, everybody. Um, welcome to the Royal Society of Arts and to this event, which is um, called Work Less and Get Things Done. Um, I'm Robert Booth. I'm the social affairs correspondent at The Guardian newspaper. I've written a bit about four-day week, um, and hence I've been invited to... Um, chair this session today, which is linking the publication of a new book called Shorter, How Working Less Will Revolutionise the Way Your Company Gets Things Done, um, and also probably how you can get things done um, in a different way. And it's written by Alex Sujung Kim Pong, who's here today, and he's going to speak to us for 10 minutes about that. He's here on my left. Um, what he's looking at is essentially... Is there a, what we're looking at as a group is looking at whether it is time to redesign the working week. There's a lot of talk about this in the media at the moment, in politics as well. And the book Shorter delves into the global movement. Alex has been around the world looking at different examples of how companies in all sorts of different industries have been moving to four-day weeks or six-hour days or other forms of kind of compressed working um, in an attempt to improve productivity and possibly profitability as well. Um, finally, there's going to be a rather unscientific poll, um, <laughs> which we're going to be running here and online, um, about whether you think a four-day week's a good idea or not. And one of our speakers here is having to argue kind of against a four-day week, and he's not, he's not hopeful. Um, <clears throat> anyway, um, I think the details of that will be up on the screen later. Um, and you can take part in that. So let me just say a brief word about the people that we're going to be hearing from today. Alex Sujung Kim Pang Pong sorry, um, is a, based in the future, i.e. Menelo Park in um, Silicon Valley. Um, he is a futurist. Essentially, um, he has worked in technology forecasting for all sorts of different companies. Um, he spent two decades studying the interface between people and technology, uh, and he's worked with um, all sorts of governments and um, large companies and spoken around the world. He also wrote a book, interestingly, recently about rest and why you get more done when you work less. So you can see that he's interested in the um, interface between um, what, what we do at work, how we do it, and the kind of productivity, which is a lot of the argument about the four-day week. Then next, we're going to hear from um, Julian Jessup, uh, who's in the middle here. He's an independent economist. He's um, from the UK. He has worked at the Treasury, um, which is, um, we could probably ask him about that for most of the session, um, and also HSBC um, in the city. And he is a fellow of the um, free market think tank, the Institute of Economic Affairs. Um, and we are going to hear from him. And finally, we're going to hear from Anne Frank, furthest left here, and she is currently the chief executive of the Chartered Management Institute. I don't know, you're not going to be the chief, anyway, you are the chief executive of the Chartered Management Institute, previously a senior executive at companies like Procter & Gamble and Mars. She's an expert on gender balance in the workplace, um, and she speaks frequently in the media and at conferences on that and other management topics, and so we will hear from her. She's the author of a book called Create a Gender Balanced Workplace. Where's your copy? I gave it to Alex. Oh, there you go. Anyway, it's got a lovely cover. It's got a lovely... Please, <laughs> Please join us in welcoming our panel.
I think for, first it's you, Alex. All right. Please. Thank you very much. Oh, yeah. So, thanks very much for coming out on your lunch hour. Um, it is, I suppose, obligatory when you're talking about the four-day week at some point to invoke John Maynard Keynes and Bertrand Russell's essays from about 90 years ago. So I will start there and get that out of the way. Um, I normally, you know, I think as most of us know, they talked in economic prospects of our grandchildren and in praise of idleness about how by now our generation could be working 15 or 20 hours a week. And usually the next sentence after that is either or of what, what went wrong with the world or what did they get wrong. But I think I want to go in another direction in this. Just in the conclusion of In Praise of Idleness, Bertrand Russell has this line that has always stuck with me. And he said, modern methods of production have given us the possibility of ease and security for all. We have chosen instead to have overwork for some and starvation for the others. Which seems to me like not a bad description of a kind of polarized labor and work environment that sort of exists now. But Russell actually was, was actually right on both, both counts. Where he gets wrong is suggesting that this was an either-or proposition. Because information technologies, mobile devices, and most recently robotics and artificial intelligence have dramatically improved our productivity and given us the possibility of ease and security for all. The problem is that a combination of toxic culture, outmoded thinking, poor management, malign product design, and bad economics have buried those gains under a world that creates overwork for some and starvation for others. So to put it another way, the four-day week is actually already here. It's just covered over by bad practices and habits. And in my new book, Shorter, I talk about companies all over the world in fast-paced, highly competitive industries, software, design, advertising, restaurants, financial services, and others, that are figuring out how to strip away those layers of bad, of unproductive practice and thinking. Moving to four-day weeks without cutting salaries, without sacrificing productivity or profitability, or alienating customers or clients. Now, leaders of the companies making this jump are trying to solve actually pretty immediate familiar business challenges. They want to recruit and retain great people, which for software companies and restaurants and such is actually a real serious problem these days. Leaders and their employees are struggling with work-life balance. Most of the founders are veterans of places like Google or McKinsey or Kantar and are now parents of young children. They want to have space to think creatively and to be more innovative. And they want to build more sustainable companies that don't burn themselves and employees out, but help them do work that they all really enjoy. So how do they do this? Well, studies find that in offices, most of us lose about two hours of productive time per day to multitasking, meetings, interruptions, and other things. So if you can deal with that, you're a long way to being able to do five days work in four. So companies often start by shortening meetings, reducing the number of meetings they hold, and they encourage better use of existing technologies 
and encourage people to experiment with new tools that help them be more productive and more focused. And they redesign the workday itself, setting aside periods during which people can work undisturbed on their most important tasks and reserving other times for meeting clients, for brainstorming, for lunches, and so on. And in other industries, it works a little bit differently, but it still works. So government agencies, factories, repair shops may adopt six-hour shifts, but they lengthen the time that they're open, which turns out to be a win for customers as well as benefiting workers. And even in hourly work, higher spending on salaries can be offset by savings elsewhere. So in the United States, there are several nursing homes that have created programs for certified nursing assistants, who are the people who actually you know, spend a lot of time with residents, they help them get dressed, they bathe them, they spend time with them throughout the day. And some nursing homes now offer 40 hours pay for 30 hours work, assuming workers hit certain benchmarks. And at one nursing home, the program cost an extra $140,000 per year, but the net cost was actually only $20,000 because they saved so much money on you know, temp agency fees, recruitment, um, advertisers, and other things. And the quality of care was also dramatically higher. So moving to a four-day week isn't just about cutting salaries or cutting hours. It's about figuring out how to work fewer hours while maintaining same levels of productivity, profitability, quality, and creativity. So how well do companies do in meeting these objectives? Well, um, the four-day week helps solve significant problems with recruitment and retention, work-life balance, professional development, and sustainability. People say that they're happier and healthier, both at work and at home, and they have more time for hobbies, for spending time with family and children. None of this is surprising. But it also benefits companies as well. Almost all of them report higher revenues and profits, despite the drop in work time. And companies fighting for talent can get more senior people who've done their share of late nights and want to keep doing great work, but in a saner kind of environment. Retention rates go up, which for small startups or little companies can be huge. You know, losing a key developer or a senior marketing person at the wrong moment can be really an existential problem. It also benefits company culture. It's the challenge of figuring out how to do five days work in four encourages people to be more experimental, to have more of a growth mindset. And immediately getting the benefits of streamlining your processes, harnessing new tools, provides a powerful incentive to master new technologies. And for older professionals, it's a chance to put their experience to use fixing what's broken in their professions, what they've always, what they've always hoped to be able to repair. And customers turn out to be supportive rather than resistant. Business clients, it turns out, have the same kinds of problems with recruitment and work-life balance and so on. And so companies trialing four-day weeks are kind of working on solutions that might actually help them as well. And the shorter work week also changes the way that companies hire and who they look for. As one founder put it, anyone can sit in a chair for 12 hours a day. What you really want in a shorter work week is people who are experienced enough to successfully redesign their work, who have strong organizational skills, who know how to both collaborate and ruthlessly prioritize, and maybe 
are a little underappreciated in their current jobs. So one of the things that happens in these environments is that working mothers who around the world still have to fight to maintain the same responsibilities that they have before becoming parents in conventional companies turn out to be able to turn out not to suffer a penalty for motherhood, but are able to charge a premium for it. Finally, a more widespread adoption of the four-day week could benefit countries as well. Shorter working hours translate into lower energy consumption, less carbon, less commuting time. And it could also benefit regions and countries trying to become magnets for global talent or to attract young people back home. And an economy in which workers have a bigger voice in how work is automated and get a bigger share of the benefits of increased productivity is one in which we're less likely to suffer huge disruptions from automation and AI. So we take for granted that long hours are the norm, that they are inevitable and unavoidable, and that overwork is a fact of life, and that burnout is an occupational hazard. We celebrate our ability to succeed in a world that offers overwork for some, but it turns out that now, right now, today, we have the means to create ease and security for all. It's just a question of recognizing that that future is within our grasp and taking advantage of it. Thank you very much. <laughs> I knew that would happen. Right, thank you. Um, I feel like I've drawn the, the short straw today. Um, what sort of wretch is going to stand in front of you and argue against a, a shorter working week? Um, let me start then with sort of three positive points of, of agreement. Um, first, I think there's a lot of agreement that people working fewer hours tend to be happier uh, and more productive, meaning that their output per hour increases. Um, certainly nobody wants burned-out workers. Um, no employer would think that's a, that's a good idea. Um, second, there are clearly lots of important social gains that you can make from flexible working. So, for example, parents in, in particular may benefit from more family-friendly hours. And third, it, it's worth saying that at various points in history, government intervention has, has definitely helped um, to improve working conditions. So, in the case of the UK, for example, I'm thinking of the, the factory acts in the, in the 19th century. Um, so given those positive points, what, you know, what, what, is, my, what is my problem? Um, basically, I've got concerns about the, the feasibility of everybody working shorter hours and the potential costs in terms of lost income, um, lost production of flexibility, as well as potentially increases in costs for some businesses that aren't able to, to handle these problems. Um, here I've actually got four points to make. So these are my four negative points outweighing my three positive ones. Um, first, it, it's simply not enough to say that people working fewer hours are, are more productive. Um, they actually have to be a lot more productive if they're going to want to still take home the same pay at the end of the week for what they do. Um, suppose, for example, you work four days rather than five. In order to do the same amount of work in that shorter time period, you actually have to increase your hourly output by 25%. Now, that might be possible in some businesses, and I know Alex has lots of good examples, uh, primarily from, from tech industries and from creative industries. Um, but it's very hard to achieve that across the economy as a whole. 
And it's a particular problem in service sectors where people are basically spending their time dealing face-to-face -face with, with other people. Um, if you take the example of a GP whose diary is already full of 10-minute appointments with, with patients, um, it's very hard for them to increase the number of patients that they see in a day by 25%. Similarly, it's very hard for a surgeon to perform 25% more operations in a, in a given period. So the imposition of a shorter working week would be a particular problem for, for the NHS. And this is something that you may remember during the election campaign when Labour was promoting a shorter working week. It didn't really have a good answer to this question. Um, many more people would end up having to be employed in those health service roles at substantial cost, potentially, to the, to the taxpayer. But I think it's a problem for, for many other sectors too. So someone working as a, as a teacher or a driver or a hairdresser is going to very, find it very difficult to do an awful lot more work in, in a shorter period of time. My second point is, well, first, let's step back and suppose it is possible for someone to work fewer hours and be significantly more, more productive so that they're worth at least as much to their current employer. Um, why on earth, then, is this not already happening? Um, you know, why does the government need to get involved to tackle that problem? Now, I know we're supposed to believe that um, bosses are all evil capitalist scum looking to exploit their workforce, but are we also supposed to believe that they're so stupid that they can't recognise things in front of them that might actually you know, make them even bigger profits? Now, that may well be the case in some companies. I mean, clearly, there are cultural problems and old habits that need, need, to, need to die. Uh, and then people like Alex can, can promote those cultural changes. But I don't see an obvious role for the government in particular to wade in and, and intervene. Third, if you look at the precedents where there has been heavy intervention by the government, they're not actually very encouraging. I think almost everybody agrees that the imposition of a one-size-fits-all 35-hour week in France ended up doing, doing more harm than good. Um, even the report on working hours that John McDonnell commissioned from the economist Lord Skidelsky uh, last year was quite cautious on what could be achieved here in practice. And above all, I think there's a frequent tension in policy circles between calls for uh, more government intervention on the one hand uh, and attacks on forms of flexible employment on, on the other, even when those new forms of employment might actually be precisely the way that some people could end up working shorter hours if they want to. Um, for instance, some would see a, like to see a much bigger role for, for trade unions and for collective bargaining in governing hours as well as pay. But again, that could be a dangerous form of one-size-fits-all policy. Um, my own favourite example here, and I know this one is, is controversial, is, is calls to ban so-called zero-hours contracts, which are contracts that don't guarantee a fixed number of hours work per week. Now, obviously, there is a trade-off between flexibility and security, and sometimes that doesn't work out the best way. But many people actually like the option opportunities that zero-hours contracts provide, and there may be one way for some people to work shorter hours if indeed they want to do so. Now, to be fair, um, Skidelsky conceded that his proposals could be criticised on the grounds that, and I'm going to quote from his report here, um, they set up bureaucratic and collective mechanisms for achieving outcomes which should be left to the market. But actually, it's very much my point, quite so. One of the great strengths of a flexible labour market is that most people can choose jobs, hours and patterns of work that suit their personal circumstances, and that clearly is something that, that can be encouraged. So in summary, I, obviously I, I do think that a better work-life balance is, is, is a good thing, um, but people also do still need to earn money. Uh, the economy has to generate the income and the output 
that can then be used to finance the public services on which we all rely. Um, governments in particular, I think, need to, to tread carefully here. Um, attacks on flexible forms of employment won't help deliver the productivity gains that we need in order to improve real wages and allow those people who want to to, to work less. So above all, it's important to recognise that you know, there are trade-offs here between shorter hours and, and other things that you might value. And sometimes those trade-offs are, are not actually favourable. Thank you. Right, well, I think we've heard um, from uh, both Alex and Julian some very, very good and compelling arguments around this topic. Um, I'm going to cover uh, this position from, from three really, three somewhat different points, but I'll, I'll try and relate back to theirs. Um, the first is, and this won't surprise any of you in the room, uh, that CMI, we have about 130,000 members. All of them are either aspiring or practicing managers, and we asked them about this not long ago. It was actually in November 2018. And there will be no prizes um, for how that went. Uh, the vast majority of the just over 1,000 um, managers that responded to our survey were very much in favor of a four-day work week. Um, now, you might say, well, why were they in favor? And again, I think you've heard from Alex um, uh, many of the reasons why they thought this was a very good idea. They, they, they felt it would dramatically improve job satisfaction. And we do know that more engaged employees are more productive. And on average, we see at CMI that when you have um, engaged employees, uh, your productivity can increase by up to 32%. So clearly, um, managers see engaged employees as a positive. Uh, but the other benefits, again, Alex has alluded to them, were in the recruitment and retention of talent, where they felt that actually this would make their job recruiting better people and keeping them a much easier task. And actually in the productivity gains and in the quality of work gains that they felt they would experience by shorter working hours. And that's quite interesting, and it might seem contradictory. But as we know, the number one driver of productivity is actually the quality of leadership and management. And when you are simply managing people by presenteeism, which is a lot of what long hours culture does, then you're absolutely not managing at all the quality of they work, the work they do. You can sit, as Alex said, in a chair for 12 hours. For all we know, you could be on Facebook you know, chatting with your friends for eight of those 12 hours and perhaps tweeting for the rest. It doesn't necessarily equate for getting the output that we need and the quality that we need. And this is particularly true for a knowledge economy like Great Britain, where a lot of our outputs really aren't measured. And I do respect that hairdressers are a little different in this regard, although the quality of the haircut could, could be important to some of us. Um, but a lot of the quality of the work we do can simply not be measured by the inputs. Even the example of GPs, many GPs would argue that actually by seeing fewer patients and spending more time with them, they would give better diagnostics that would result in, in better health outcomes for many of their patients. So managers do see the logic of this, and they do see that it would lead them to be better leaders and managers themselves. My second point, and here's where I actually have quite a lot of sympathy for the point that Julian made, is I do not believe in a one-size-fits-all. I certainly do not believe this should be a government policy or a partisan policy or that it should be legislated. What I would say is that employers that allow 
their employees to schedule their work around their lives will be rewarded. And there is ample evidence to suggest this. And that may be through a four-day work week. It may be through allowing flexible work on any given day across a week. It may be through a job share. But it's allowing people to fit their work around their lives. When I was at Procter & Gamble, one of my favorite anecdotes is I was a divorced mother. I had to take my kid to school. I was in a custody suit. So I just told my manager, non-negotiable, I'm going to be late for your meeting that starts at 9 AM every day. He said, fine. So I paid that forward. I had one guy that liked to play in an orchestra. He left early for practice. I had another woman that played netball. I had a third guy that liked to come in late and stay late because he liked to go out clubbing. Didn't matter. They all worked around their lives. Do you know that we had the highest shares and margins on our brand anywhere in the world, and we got a visit from HQ in Cincinnati, it was Procter & Gamble, to figure out what that was. It was allowing people to fit their work around their lives. So that is a, a leading prescription. And if you can do that with shorter hours, well, why wouldn't you? You'll be better bosses. You'll have a happier workforce. And my final point in all of this is really what I'm getting at, which we know drives the most productive outcomes, the best mental health and well-being, and the best results for everybody, including inclusive workforces. And that's that we are inclusive managers and leaders. And actually, allowing people to fit their work around their lives, whatever their reason is, whether it's a triathlon, children, or caring for a sick parent, just results in a better, more productive, happier outcome, not only for the individuals and teams, but for their organizations and for society as a whole. And for this reason, I think it's something that we should do today. Thank you, Anne. That was great. So um, what we'll do now is I'll, we'll have a little chat here as a group, and then we'll open it up um, to questions uh, in, a, in a few minutes' time. Um, I was struck by um, the, I suppose, the, the idea that this is something that could help everybody in society. And I was wondering a little bit, when, as I was hearing uh, uh, the contributions, if there's a sort of social justice question actually in this. Because in the UK, actually, hours have been getting longer. Um, and I think it was... 2014 was the first time since the Second World War when average working hours started to get longer again. So um, there's a uh, sort of pushing against the momentum of the economy. And what you guys were talking about there was a sort of group of people for whom this might work quite well, whether it's managers in um, Procter & Gamble or if it's uh, people who are capable acts of reimagining their own work and being creative with that and it's not about the you know the uber driver or the deliveroo courier or that other part of the economy that seems to be growing so i just wonder if there's a if there's any sense in which this is just for a particular cadre of people or actually if it's something that could work across the bulk of the uk economy well i think it's certain you know <clears throat> Uber drivers are people who are in or of these uh, these kinds of sort of precarious jobs have a lot of things stacked against them already, um, and I think if you you know it is a challenge if you are um, some sort of hourly or piece piece worker, whether that is you know, sort of whether it's an Uber driver or a lawyer 
or of two or of to, uh, to, sh to shorten hours this way. Um, plenty of law firms or accountancies go from charging hourly to project-based project work before they go to four-day work weeks, so as a way of eliminating that. Um, so I think you now, I think as a broader question though of, you know, the, uh, is it the case, is there a social justice argument to be made for those people who have less choice about the, about the long hours that they work? Um, yeah, I think there is. And I think it's, it's, one, it's one that's not, that's not difficult to make. Um, it's one to be made alongside, though, I think the economic case for or the benefits to organizations and to society as large, at, at large for, or to, for shortening, shortening working hours. But aren't they least likely to get the benefits, those people? Yeah, I mean... Because it, they can't move on to four-day weeks. You know, the, I mean, uh, there's a category of people for whom move, uh, or for whom either move, uh, moving themselves to four-day weeks or, you know, sort of being moved without fundamentally re-engineering re their mm. jobs is going to be incredibly hard. Um, these are people who, but, you know, you can add this to the stack of problems that, uh, sort of, that such jobs bring. Yeah. I mean, but Alex, you gave us an example of care, nursing home care workers, right? Yeah. Now, these are very, they're, they're low-skilled hourly wage workers. Um, you gave us an example of a, a, a nursing home that reduced their work week, but measured the outputs in care. And so I would submit that if you go to a system where instead of measuring the input, which is time, you measure the output, whether that's quality of case, patient care, um, um, that that's actually what you're talking about. That's how we get a more productive situation. Will that work universally across the board? No. But if you were an Uber driver, I suppose the way you'd game it is you'd say, I'm only going to drive in surge hours. I'm going to get more money the, when I drive. That example of the nurses was very grabbing, but wasn't it essentially that they were being paid more power, and that's what was increasing their productivity, not that they had Friday off? Um, they were being paid more per hour if they made certain benchmarks. So, you know, sort of, they didn't call in sick. You know, they sort of, they worked all, they worked all six hours of their shift. Those were really the two major things that they had to do. And yes, yeah, so at the end of the week, if you did those things, then you got paid 40 hours work. You know, 40 40 hours for sort of for 30 hours. So it was a you know there was a there was a very clear relation linkage between sort of working working in this way and you know and and getting that re and getting that reward. Julia, thinking about the structure of the British economy, then how, what are the big blockages to this coming through? Well, I think that. I mean, to go back to your point, you, you made a point earlier, actually interesting, about how hours worked has started to increase since about 2014. Um, I think there are lots of things happening here. I mean, partly the, you know, the economy has been recovering over that period, so there's certainly more work opportunities for, for people to do. So there's a positive story there. There's also a negative story, which is around the, the weakness of productivity growth in, in the UK, actually in all major economies, but in the UK more than most. Um, and there is a problem that you have that short-term, hopefully, Thing, distorting some of the some of the data. So because people are less productive, they're maybe having to work longer. Um, because companies are reluctant to invest, they're not putting as much money into machinery and equipment and things like that that might improve the productivity of, of individual workers. Um, there's a huge debate about how best to, to deal with that. 
Um, my hope and expectation is that this is essentially a temporary phenomenon. It's a legacy of the global financial crisis. You know, businesses are, are nervous. They've had the additional uncertainty of Brexit in the UK over the last three years as well. You know, banks are reluctant to, to lend because they're dealing with the, the legacy of the bad debts on their books and so on. Um, so hopefully on time, in time, this will, this will work through. Uh, we're already approaching some form of full employment in the UK. I'm, I'm, I'm wary of how I put that because I know lots of people are you know, underemployed. They're not necessarily doing the jobs that they want to, but you know, we're starting to see labour shortages in the UK. The unemployment rate is certainly very, very low. So I think that will also further incentivise companies themselves to make the sorts of changes that we're, we're talking about. You know, if, if recruitment and retention becomes an even bigger problem because there are labour shortages, yeah. then they're going to have to work even harder to, to keep people happy and if that means shorter hours where people are more productive, then, then so be it. Um, but throughout this, I think a consistent theme, I keep, one of the themes I keep coming back to, is that I don't think the government needs to, to get involved with this. And I am concerned if the government did get involved, there'd be all sorts of unintended consequences. It would be increased costs for those businesses that maybe can't adapt as quickly, uh, problems in things like the, in things like the NHS. Um, so I think... You know, this is clearly something, that, you know, a trend that we would hope to see uh, continue and accelerate towards people working shorter and more flexible hours. But I still think the market can drive it without the government needing I to think, be involved. I think it's probably quite unlikely that any government, after what happened with Labour in the general election, I think it's unlikely that the politicians will be interested in getting involved themselves. Because I think Skidelsky's recommendation was that, you know, you, the, the government as a client and an employer itself might lead that change. But that's only a small part of the economy, isn't it? And, and, the, and the backlash that there was about the idea that the NHS could go to a four-day week shows that it's very difficult. You touched on something there that, about happiness of workers as well and, and the fact that you know, we're reaching closer to full employment and therefore retaining people is going to be um, more important. I wonder, Anne, in thinking about sort of families and uh, mothers and fathers how the four-day week could change the way that a whole working life might pan out. Yeah, well, one of the um, inhibitors to productivity, and it's interesting because at one point we talked about, well, we're rational, right? If we um, knew something would raise uh, GDP, we would do it. Well, gender balance would add $150 billion to the UK economy. That's 5% of GDP, but we still don't do it. Um, one of the things that would drive us being able to do this is to have much more shared um, parental leave. Currently, only 2% of fathers take paternity leave. It falls to the woman. Um, she often gets held back in promotion, as Alex has highlighted. Um, there is the motherhood penalty, which the Treasury, among others, have calculated. Um, and by moving to a four-day week, which is more flexible and would allow um, um, uh, working couples to better plan their childcare, you would get more productive organizations. And absolutely, this is something that would aid the economy and get more people back into it. Because, you know, returners, women who have stopped their careers for 10 years, are an incredible loss of productivity. These people are highly educated. Getting them back in with something like this could be also a huge um, um, enabler for, for increased productivity. Actually, just on the, on the gender point, um, one of the problems here is that there are habits that, that die hard, um, and there's certainly a gender distinction between some of these habits. So, for example, when I, when I worked in the city, um, if a man left early to go and pick up his children from school, 
Um, other men would typically say, oh, great, he's, he's good for him, you know, he's uh, chipping in, that sort of thing. Um, if a woman wanted to do that, oh, a typical woman, you know, this is what happens when you recruit women. Now, that is a, is a classic example of a sort of hidden, hidden bias, and in this case, sometimes it's pretty, pretty explicit. And I think, similarly, the presenteeism argument is a, is a classic one. Again, in the city, it was a common habit to... Uh, have an extra jacket that you left on your chair uh, while you're out having your long lunch. And that, that was a, clearly a com complete waste of time. So um, I've got absolutely no doubt that there are big cultural changes that, that you can make. Uh, and I think a lot of the work should be done by, by you know, consultants such as yourself and organisations such as yourself to, to draw attention to these, to these cultural problems uh, and make people aware that there is a, you know, a failure here. There's a market failure, which is perhaps a lack of information. Um, people don't understand sometimes that running businesses in these ways are actually bad. Two hours that can be gained by not buggering around the work, basically. <laughs> and yeah. I, I was really thinking about the faffing about on Twitter and going onto Facebook and going and sort of spending too long at the coffee point. That's all great, but actually isn't that part of being a human being as well, that you need that kind of... that to try and compress the working week is also kind of inhumane. Yes to the first, no to the second. I mean, I think that sort of one of the one of the really interesting things that you see in the way that work days play out in or the places that move to four days is a kind of rebalancing of social and work time, so that there's less sort of you know time on Twitter, less uh, just kind of you know asking people that one question that turns into 15 minutes that distracts you from some critical task. But there's also spontaneous stuff like people making lunch together sort of the time when you're social, you are really social. Um, and the reality is, you know, a lot of us go to work partly because we see friends there. And one of the good pieces of news is that that doesn't get completely destroyed. One of my favorite examples of this was, is a company called Pursuit Marketing in Glasgow. They sort of, they're a call center. And the first several weeks after they implemented a four-day week, there were a few people who were coming into the office on Friday for like half an hour and then disappearing. And finally, the managing director asked one of them what's going on, and they fessed up. They hadn't told their wives <laughs> that they were now working four days a week. So they were coming in, you know, making a call, and then going off and, you know, hanging out. And that's, I mean, it's a lovely illustration of how, you know, social life at work is a significant thing. It actually also helps make us better workers and more productive. But it's also the case, but you know, I think people find ways of being social and easing the potential for sort of you know, a kind of inhumane outcome. Yeah. Okay. Let's, let's throw it open to the, to the room. There's lots of, lots of questions here. Um, are there, how do we do this? Are there any microphones? Yes, great. Okay, over here, please, in the middle. Oh yeah, we're going to do. So what? What we're going to? The poll is up there already. We're starting to vote. Phone lines are open. <laughs> I'm being told phone lines are open. Okay, there you go. Um, how do they vote in the room through the? You can through the through that. <laughs> I don't know what that means. Visit Slido. Oh, there you go. Okay, sorry. Visit Slido.com and vote from there. But let's, yes, yes, your question. Hello. Um, I'm really interested in the in organisational responsibility for this. So Bain & Co did some research, didn't they, and they, on what they call organisational drag. 
And they said that we spend, so those of us who are knowledge workers, often on fairly invisible outputs or reports or whatever it is, we lose about 20% of our week, which is the one lost day right there, on pointless emails, meetings that overrun and ramble and don't have an agenda, calcified processes, duplicated processes. Somebody else starts a project, halfway through someone says, why are we doing this? because we've got that one going over there, so we start again. And they said that people that manage, so they're managing their individual outputs as well as a team, lose at least a quarter of their time. So I think what we're talking about is, and there's, then there's also the whole layer of work that digitization has given us on top of the real work. So the, the emails, the, you know, the social media and all that kind of thing. So I think if... if if managers were better at really getting on top of this stuff, they could track the time it takes to do tasks. They, they, they fight against Parkinson's law. You know, the work takes as long as the time available. So we say, look, you know, block out two hours to do that. But we don't actually think, do you know what, if we just did that without distraction and we didn't have the opportunity cost of switch tasking, we could get that done in 45 minutes. So I think it's, it's, it actually comes down to management and leadership responsibility for looking at, for knowledge workers, actually how long does the work take? Mm. And instead of a lot of pointless, I'm going to hand the, I promise I'll hand this over in a second, but I think instead of a lot of pointless HR initiatives, what HR should really be doing and leaders of organisations is saying, do you know what, let's get that work done as quickly as possible. Go home, have a life, re-energise, come back in tomorrow, get your work done as as quickly as possible. So I, I think it's, a, it's an organisational responsibility and, and like anything, it comes down to good management. Thank you. Good rally and cry. And let's have another point or question. Just pass it across there. Why not? It'll be quicker. Thank you. Can I go first very quickly? Because I... Well, you'll get it next. Um, just very quickly, I think this, this has highlighted what seems to me a really key point, which is there's a difference between four days a week structurally and working flexibly, I think, and the idea that people should be encouraged to work as little as they need to to get things done. And if that means they go home two hours early or they come in two hours late or they disappear at lunchtime for three hours, so long as they're doing what they need to, that seems to me to be a different challenge to trying to create a four-day week structure where nearly everybody has a Friday off, for example. Okay. Yes, please. Um, thank you very much. Uh, I, it, was, it was amazing just listening to all the speakers. Thank you. Uh, Mr. Pong, this is a very, uh, a very specific question for you. I do have your book. Um, <laughs> and uh, I happen to work for a not-for-profit. So I wondered, apart from one not-for-profit that you actually looked at, uh, there isn't actually mention of many not-for-profits within the book itself. And I wondered why that was, unless, of course, there's a generally held view that people who are in not-for-profits don't work at all. <laughs> um, the answer, I mean, I've, you know, I found one in Oakland that's, that is so far of the only one I found, mainly because, and I think there is, a, there is a sense within that world, not that people don't work, but, you know, there are a million problems to solve. You know, if you're, and, you know, if, you are, if you're working in a philanthropy or you're doing social justice stuff, how, you know, when do you... You know, if you, how do you justify, you know, stopping do, you know, stopping making the world a better place, and so that's, you know, uh, and so, uh, you know, the place that I visited at least explained, explained it that way, um, that they, uh, so I hope that, so yeah. That's right. Um, just to pick up on a point that. 
gentleman made there about there have been two separate things here, the, the shorter hours or the hours that you work and, and the flexibility around them. Um, I'm actually rather keener to argue in favour of more flexibility than I am necessarily in favour of, of shorter hours. There may well be people who, for whatever reason, want to work long hours. I mean, they might even like their jobs. They might be working non-profit sectors where they might they're actually... Very lonely they they might be very lonely. They might be very lonely. Exactly, <laughs> exactly. Uh, or they might, frankly, need the money. That's the other thing, of course. I mean, lots of people may need to work long hours because they need the money. So that's point one. Point two... Um, because I don't think anybody really knows how other companies should be run or how the economy as a whole should, should work itself out, why not give people the, as much flexibility as possible and then let them work it out? I mean, this is classic you know, free market but, but stuff, isn't it? But there have been studies, um, Ernst & Young has done one, uh, that shows that when you enable flexible working, you do get double-digit productivity boosts, and we've done something similar. So I agree with you that it is about letting people work flexibly rather than legislating a one-size-fits-all solution. Um, I also want to say to the lady who highlighted the impact of bad management, um, so it, too, costs the economy $150 billion a year. Um, and that's, uh, that comes from uh, the Bank of England and some work that um, um, uh, Charlie Mayfield's done on, on productivity. And so really, um, you know, you're absolutely right about upping the management practices. And again, good managers and leaders don't do the unnecessary stuff. They trust people and they focus on outputs, not face time. And we are still some way away from an economy that, that allows everybody to do that, despite the evidence that it works. Um, let's go. Can we go over to this side of the room here? This lady in the front row. Hello. Um, this is a question for Alex. Um, I wanted to know a bit more about the how-to <laughs> around the four-day week. Sure. Um, in okay, so in the office context, as opposed to garages or factories or other places, um, almost always the first thing that people attack are meetings, right? Meetings are too long, nobody likes meetings. In most places, they're pretty poorly disciplined. And also, meeting software tends to, has, you know, years ago, some engineer in Seattle decided meetings would default to being an hour long, and the whole world has just followed this. So by making meetings shorter, um, making them more pointed, thinking harder about who it is who needs to be in them, often eliminating the standing 9 a.m. meeting every single day, you do a couple things. I mean, one is you free up people's time. Another is by you know, attacking this thing that everybody loves to change, you get an early important win. And it begins to raise the question, all right, if we can change this, what else can we change? The next thing, you go, the next thing people do is um, or to focus on technology stuff. So this means, number one, um, cutting out the distracting stuff, you know, the Slack channel, having people order check email at particular times of day, but also giving people the power to experiment with tools, with processes, to figure out what things they themselves can automate and what things they can use technology to sort of allow themselves to kind of climb up the value chain. Um, and then after that, I think redesigning the workday to have sort of clearer boundaries between sort of focus time, time with clients or brainstorming time and social time is something, you, is something I see in a lot of places. And, then at, and if you can just do those three things, you go an awful long way to, you know, to being able to reclaim those two hours 
that, uh, that, uh, that you know, workers lose and the 25% time that managers lose. And then you know, after that, it becomes really, really incredibly specific depending upon you know, your business and your clients and the rhythm and all that stuff. But you know, just do those three things and you're like in the top 10%. That's good advice. Let's have another question here. So I'm just going to be reading some questions from online. Um, so apologies if I get any of the names wrong. But we have Sam asking, how do we manage technology to achieve a work and social balance, which you've kind of just mentioned. And then uh, Lewis, who's asking, what do you think about the message that Andrew Yang talked about, what the market does and does not value, like caretaking, something we didn't include in the GDP? One thing about um, the technology that uh, Alex gave a lot of really good answers, but um, how many people clear their email inbox? Okay, stop. Why is that a good thing? Because a lot of the emails you get are completely and utterly unnecessary, and you shouldn't respond to them because you're just wasting your time and everybody's time that sends you the email. So I think this, you know, we somehow have this notion that we have to respond to all your emails. You do not. You should look at the email and respond to it if it's important. And if it's not important, don't respond to it. Just ignore it. So I think we allow technology sometimes to get in the way through, you know, silly rules like, oh, God, I've got to clear my inbox. You do not have to clear your, your inbox. You, do also, you also don't have to check your emails at 6 a.m. in the morning, which is another a habit we've all fallen into, which is very bad. It's bad for productivity. But it's beginning to feel like there's loads of different things we should be worrying about before the four-day week, isn't it? If you, you're just giving us, like, tons of homework right there, and we could do this as well, and that would solve it. Let's take another question. Well, anyone. Hi, thanks. Um, flexibility and income bring to mind uh, universal basic income, which is a, a issue that the RSA has been doing a lot of work on. Mm. Seems to me these two issues, shorter working week and UBI, kind of dovetail together in some ways. Is there a way in which the campaign for, 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 these, for changes in these areas, these two can be brought together? Julian, I should imagine that you, you're, you love the idea of just giving everyone free money, right? Oh, of course. Yeah. yeah. And, a, and a tree to produce in the first place. Yeah. Um, on the UBI question then, I, I think I'm a fan of the UBI in principle, but in practice it seems to be very hard to design one that will actually deliver the results that you, that you want. Um, in order for it to, to have a sort of meaningful impact on people's life choices, whether they work shorter hours or go and train or become off-grid hermits, whatever it is they, they want to be, it has to be set at, at such a high level that it actually turns out to be very expensive. So there's a sort of dilemma there between you know, setting it at a high enough level to work and actually and therefore imposing a huge cost on everybody else to, to, to fund it. It's a, it's a difficult one. Um, I certainly think it's an idea worth exploring. I mean, it's been suggested in lots of other contexts. So, for example, a way of redistributing the, the benefits of automation and technology and so on, um, perhaps as a replacement for other sort of clunkier forms of of benefit, you know, if you could get rid of a whole myriad of different types of welfare benefit, replace it simply with a, a single payment from the government. But as I say, the problem you keep coming back to is it has to be set at such a high level to achieve those effects, it actually becomes extremely, extremely expensive. Um, I've got a comment on the GDP question as well, actually, that, that came up. Um, th this is really interesting. There's been a, a lot of debate in the UK 
and elsewhere recently about whether GDP is a, is a good measure of economic activity, let alone broader issues like happiness and, and well-being and so on. But there is a lot of work being done on making sure that activities that traditionally haven't been counted in GDP are now excluded. Um, as it happens, by the way, that includes large, large elements of the shadow economy, like illegal drugs and, and other things. Um, but in particular, about unpaid work, that is now they are now looking at including that. So they work out some way of saying that if somebody's doing unpaid work, then you cost that in GDP by working out what it would cost that family or person to pay somebody else to do it. I think that's very important to do because it recognises the work that people do, typically women, of course, yeah. in these unpaid roles. But there is a caveat there, precisely because this work is unpaid, including it in GDP might give a misleading impression of the ability of the economy to, to pay taxes, to, to you know, finance debt and so on, and therefore sort of pay for the public services on which we, which we depend. So it depends what you're using GDP as. As a measure of overall economic activity, yes, include unpaid work. If you're using it as a measure of the ability of the economy to, to pay for other things, then you have to be careful. A couple more questions. Can we bring, is there a microphone? <laughs> yeah, just a, yeah. Blonde lady here. Thank you. Thank you very much. First and foremost, I have to say when I heard this talk come up for the last two years because of the intense schedule I had in corporate America, I'm um, suffering from adrenal system fatigue right now. So my whole experience has been corporate America for the past 10 years, being involved in corporate change, cultural change at a Fortune 500 company. And standing back and listening to everything you say, the one thing that really bothers me in when companies who are 20 to 30,000 people who want to change, the leadership talks doesn't trickle down. And the one thing I consistently thought is like, is basically shareholders, publicly traded companies. You know, Alex, you mentioned companies like startups in Silicon Valley, they're small, you have that nimbleness. But when you're a, fortune, a legacy brand to try switch and change, and, but yet they still tout themselves as these balanced companies, is it basically going down to having capitalism, as Mark Benioff saying, having to change? I'm just curious to see your input, because it's the shareholders, I feel, is the one thing that holds up a lot of this cultural change that you're discussing? Sure. Um, I don't have companies that have shareholders. I do have ones that have some, you know, sort of big VC investors. Um, and I, am, I was surprised that sort of VCs, you know, people who generally encourage you know, startups to work themselves to death so that they can afford, you know, another yacht at Cabo, um, actually are much more affirmative about this than, than I would have expected. I think, you know, the, you know, as for internally, what we've seen with big companies historically moving, let's say, from six-day weeks to five-day weeks, the way that Ford Motor Company did in the 1920s, was it gets rolled out division by division. So it took them three years to, or of experiments throughout the company before they finally implemented it on the factory line, the really famous example. There are a couple, and you know, there are a couple places in Korea, a couple chaibols who have little experiments going with four-day weeks in a couple of their smaller, smaller groups, partly with an eye to seeing can we roll it out elsewhere. I think the shareholder question it really comes down, I think, to this: the four-day week offers benefits in recruitment and retention, higher profitability, higher quality of life, work-life balance and quality of life, and better professional and talent development. Which one of those 
do you object to? And if you can explain that as a shareholder, as an investor, then we can begin to have a conversation about you know, why you resist. Also, add Julian's point here, which this is about changing cultures and behaviors. And unless you're really doing that diligently at every level, you will not unleash the additional benefits. And companies can do this. Um, I'll name one um, Diageo. You know, Diageo actually is one of the most gender balanced companies in the UK. It's also one of the most productive companies in the UK. Um, the CEO and leadership team have relentlessly cascaded a culture of inclusivity, of acceptance, of flexibility into their processes, into their culture, so that those things that you were mentioning don't happen, and they're reaping the rewards. So you have to have ambition plus action at every level, and then you can deliver this. But it's very, it's not easy. It's hard work, and that's where it falls down. So I think we have the result of the, oh, what a surprise. <laughs> <laughs> Well, actually, you weren't far off. You said you were going to lose nine to one, yeah. and it was 8.7. So 87% are four. What a good economic predictor. 87% are for the um, shorter working week, and 13% are against. And that's based on... It's only 91, 91 votes. So, you, you know, there's millions of other people out there you can persuade. But that is um, unsurprising. Um, so we have to wrap up now, I'm afraid, um, because we're out of time. I'd like to thank you all very much for coming and thank you for your questions. Um, if you want to know more about the RSA, uh, uh, you can sign up via the website and uh, receive projects, newsletters and so on. And downstairs in the, uh, the, the cafe, there are people who can uh, talk to you about um, getting involved in uh, RSA projects. Um, you can also buy shorter in the foyer if you want to hear more uh, on that um, and I think some copies have been signed and for now uh, join me in thanking our guest speakers Alex, Anne and Julian thank you very much Thanks for listening if you like this podcast head to our YouTube channel for inspiring talks, interviews and animations <laughs>